There's no doubt in my view that the uh, hardest thing to do in the Christian life is to challenge or rebuke a Christian brother or sister. Uh, When you see a Christian brother or sister, someone here at church, when you see them heading in the wrong direction, uh, I think it is the hardest thing in the world to not just let them keep going in the wrong direction, but to actually challenge them and to actually say, what you are doing is ungodly. What you are doing is dishonouring God at this point. There is nothing harder than that. But at the same time, there's actually nothing more loving that you can do for someone than that. Uh, If you do it not out of self-righteousness, not just to sort of put yourself up above them and sort of judge them, if you do it out of a genuine love and concern for the other person, for their godliness and their salvation, there is nothing more loving you can do for someone. In fact, you know someone really loves you when they don't always tell you you're good, when they don't always tell you positives about yourself, but they actually are willing to challenge you. That says, oh, that's actually someone who's worth having as a friend because they're honest with me and they love me enough to challenge me most people don't have the courage or the love and so they just let you keep on going it takes real courage to risk the friendship to risk the self-righteous response which we all give when someone rebukes us we all so what about the log in your eye to risk that takes real courage and real love and that is what the apostle paul had done for these christians in corinth in this letter we're reading about in 2 Corinthians, he had gone there, he'd gone, he, it was his church. He'd preached the gospel to them, he'd planted the church, he'd started it. He'd gone back there and he had found this ungodliness in the church and he hadn't stayed silent. He'd actually challenged them and he'd said, no, 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 you can't keep acting like that. And he'd done it in person and then from far away, he'd written them a letter. This is this letter we keep talking about between 1 and 2 Corinthians that you can't find anywhere, it's lost. He calls it the sorrowful letter because it's so sorrowful that he had to write it and the things he had to say in it to challenge them further. But now if you remember last week's passage, and I hope you do, now they were accusing him of being untrustworthy. They were saying, oh, come on, you you told us you were going to come back and visit us and all you did was send us this nasty letter rebuking us and and challenging us so you remember how he changed his plans and he didn't come back to visit them as quickly as he said he would now in last week's passage I hope you remember he started answering their criticism but he didn't really sort of justify himself he basically sort of jumped off to talking about God he sort of said well you're saying I'm untrustworthy I want to tell you God is trustworthy but now this week he gets into truly explaining himself and explaining his reasons and I think it's a wonderful passage The interesting thing is lots of people just skip over this passage. They say, oh, it's sort of irrelevant. It's just Paul and the Corinthian Christians. It was something that happened back then. And I must admit, as I opened it up on Monday to think about preaching this Sunday, I thought, why on earth did I put this passage in to preach on? Or why didn't I give it to one of the student ministers? So no. Um, (laughs) But no, it's actually a wonderful passage because what you will see, I hope, is a wonderful model of love. That's what it is. It's actually love in action in the way Paul treats this church in Corinth. So if you look in your outline, there's just two major points tonight. So take out your outline, have a look. And the first point is, the reason I did what I did, the reason I didn't come back and visit, is I wanted to do what was best for you. That's how I made my decision. And in fact, that's the first sort of takeaway point. Paul's decisions are driven not by what's best for him, but what's, what's best for the rest of the people. What is most loving for the whole church. So look with me, chapter 1, verse 23. 
He says, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. And then again in chapter 2 verse 1, he says, in fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? Now, you've got to understand this. At this point, if I was writing this letter, I would have justified myself. And he could have. Paul could have said, do you know what happened to me in Ephesus? I was run out of town. They threw rocks at my head. I was nearly killed. And you're wondering about why I didn't come back into Corinth straight away. And then God appeared to me and told me I had to go to Macedonia. So I think I've got pretty good reasons for not coming back to Corinth. He could have done that, but he says, but actually what drove me more than that is I did not want to cause you pain. That was the main reason. Now, we're not told exactly what happened on his previous visit, but clearly both Paul and all the Christians in Corinth had found it very painful. And sort of piecing it together from reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and the book of Acts, it seems there was one particular man in this church who was guilty of very, very serious sin that he refused to repent of. And if it's the same situation he was talking about in 1 Corinthians, it was sexual sin. And what happened was, and this often happens in church life, this man was getting up to no good and refusing to repent. And the majority of the church, let's just say if all this, everyone from here over, the majority of the church disapproved and kept it to themselves. And the man, once anyone started to challenge him, he got this little group over here to be his supporters. And so the church starts arguing amongst itself. There's the silent majority who would probably get together at Bible study and say, what a terrible sinner, but not have the guts to say anything to him. And then there was the loud minority who said, how dare you judge our friend? That's what was going on. But the problem for Paul wasn't so much the minority. It was that silent majority. That was the group he really had the problem with. He he says, while you disapprove, you didn't have the courage to do anything about it. So Paul had to come and be the person who upset the man and upset the minority and his supporters by effectively saying, you have to leave the church. You've got to get out. You're not welcome here. You're not welcome in a Bible study group. You're not welcome on a Sunday. You're not welcome whenever we meet. You have to leave the church. But he also had to upset the majority the rest of the people, by sort of rebuking them for letting it all go on unchallenged. And it still hadn't been fixed by the time he left. And then he heard that it still hadn't been fixed when he was over in Ephesus. So he sent them that very strong letter to challenge them to do what they had to do. He didn't send the letter to the sinner. He sent the letter to the church to say, you've got to deal with it. This is part of godliness. This is part of being the church of God. But you see, with all of that, he then thought, well, what is actually the loving thing for me to do now? I've told them what I think. I've challenged them repeatedly, not once, but more than once. If they still haven't dealt with it, and I go back straight away, then what's going to happen? We're just going to keep arguing. We're just going to grieve one another, is the language he uses. I think this is a really helpful example of how sometimes you've got to leave people to work through things not be a coward and not say anything Paul had said lots but there's a certain point there after you've said it you've just got to leave it be and stop banging your head against the wall and that seems to be what he did here he's sort of saying I want to show you love at this point and I wanted to give you space 
and give you time to work it through rather than us just keep arguing about it and me keep challenging you over and over again. Because, and this is really important, even the Apostle Paul recognises that he can only do so much for them. He can try to persuade them, he can challenge them, he can teach God's word to them, but ultimately they have to make their own decision. That's the point in verse 24. Look there with me, chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I do not mean that we have control of your faith. That's very, very important, that little line. The Apostle Paul is saying, I, I can't control you. Remember, he's the Apostle. He's got all the authority of Jesus to go and declare God's word. And he says, but I can't control you. In the end, I can't boss you around. I can't tell you what to do. He says, instead, we are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. See, his point here is, I may have shared the gospel with you. I may be your, your sort of father in the Lord, the person who, who, who gave you new birth by sharing Jesus with you, but I don't have the right to boss you around. I can't make you do it. It's not my job to control you. Ultimately, you are responsible for your faith. He wants them to hear him. And he says some pretty hard things to them. He wants them to repent where necessary. But what he's saying is, I can't make you do it. This is just a reminder, and this is very, very important. Other people here at church will rightly challenge us sometimes, will rightly rebuke us sometimes, hopefully lots of times will encourage us. And that is all right and a proper thing to do. And I pray it's what I do as I preach to you from the front here. But ultimately, you are responsible before God for your faith and for your godliness. When you stand there on the judgment day, when Jesus returns, you can't say, just blame Phil Colgan. He was the minister. He should have taught me better. You are responsible for your faith. You have the scriptures. And if you carry on in ungodliness... You are responsible for it. If you are unrepentant in your sin, you are responsible for it. If you don't act appropriately, you are responsible for it. That's the point he's making. You see, we stand by our faith. That's how we stand. But now Paul goes back to explaining that everything he has done was done out of love for them. And everything he has said was driven by what is best for them. That was always his motivation even when he wrote them that very harsh letter. So let's look from verse 3. He says, I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. He's saying, I just didn't want to come back and continue the fight. So I wrote this letter and then I gave you time to work out what to do so that when we came together... It could actually be joyful. When we came together, we could actually rejoice in our common faith, rejoice in the fact that we love Jesus, because that's what brings us together. And when I wrote that letter, he says, I didn't do that easily. I didn't do that flippantly. Sometimes when, when someone rebukes you, you then turn back and sort of fight with them and say, you're so horrible for saying those horrible things to me. Do you think they did that easily? Do you think they screwed up enough courage to challenge you easily? Do you think they did that without crying about it beforehand? Well, that's what Paul says here. He says, I cried about that letter. I didn't set out to hurt you. I wanted to do what was best for you. Look at verse 4. He says, for I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. 
This is a very, very important thing. Sometimes if we really love people, we will say the hard words to them. I think one of the wisest proverbs on friendship is Proverbs 27, verse 6. I put it on your outline. Take it out and have a look with me. It says this. It says, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. You may have lots of friends or you may have very few friends, but a true friend doesn't always tell you what you want to hear. The person who's always puffing you up and telling you, don't worry, you're really good, don't worry about it, they're probably your enemy. You see, they'll laugh with you, but they'll laugh all the way to judgment. That's what they will do. A true friend loves you enough to tell you you're wrong. And that sort of friend is more precious than gold. If you have a friend like that here, if you have brothers and sisters like that here, cherish them, hold on to them, because they are what you need. As I said before, lots of people skip over this little part of 2 Corinthians, and I nearly did it as well, because this is just a personal issue between Paul and these Corinthians. But I hope you're seeing how rich this is. This is a model of what true Christian love looks like. That's what it is. It's a model of what fellowship looks like, a fellowship that loves but also isn't afraid to challenge, that isn't afraid to rebuke. And it's a great model that I'd love to see played out in our church here in the way we treat one another. But now the Apostle Paul turns to the specific issue that caused it all, this man who was sinning in some way and refusing to repent. And it seems that finally that majority had woken up seems that finally the majority of the church had done what Paul called on them to do. And what they had done is they had withdrawn fellowship from the man. They had basically kicked him out of the church. They had said, you're not welcome to come. If they had a service at 6.30 on Sunday night, you're not welcome to come here. You're not welcome to come to any other time we meet. You're not welcome to come to our Bible study during the week. And in fact, we won't even eat with you. We're excluding you from fellowship. And that horrifies some people that idea that a church could do that and every time I preach on this I get at least one email so don't bother sending it now it's all right I've already got it I've got it from this morning because people say how that's you can't do that the church should never do that because the church is for forgiveness and the church is for sinners like us and aren't we all forgiven sinners and that is exactly right I love it when I get those emails because it shows people understand the gospel You see, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what sin is in your past or what sins you're struggling with now, you are welcome in the church. You are welcome in God's family because it's for forgiven sinners. But the person who is not welcome in God's church is the person who says, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to keep sinning. I don't care what you say to me, I'm just going to keep doing it. Even though God's word is clear, I'm just going to keep doing it knowingly and intentionally. I'm going to delight in it and refuse to repent. Jesus says in Matthew 18 and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that person should be kicked out of the church. Now how that works in a modern context where there's another church 40 metres that way and another church is very hard to put into practice. But Paul's point is that is what a church must do in that situation. If a person refuses to listen and then just sins with a high hand that's not a person who continues to struggle with sin like all of us do and I don't know what sins you're struggling with I'm not saying you should not be welcome in this church it's the person who's not struggling with sin says I'm just going to keep sinning 
and I don't care. The Bible is very clear on very rare and very serious occasions. Excommunication, it's a horrible word, isn't it, is to happen. A person should be excluded from the fellowship. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. But it seems here they'd done it. That is what the Corinthian church had finally done. And they'd asked him to leave the church. They'd stopped including him. And so now Paul gets to talking about this man and what's happened. Let's look from verse 5. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. Now, this is really, really important here. You see, it seems like the Corinthians were saying to Paul, well, we've done what you've said, Paul. That bloke who upset you, we've kicked him out of the church. But Paul says, it's not about me and him. It's not, like, it's not just that I had a problem with this guy. That's why he should keep him out. You see, when these awful situations arrive, and I pray that we don't have to deal with this sort of situation in our congregation here anytime soon, where a person needs to be challenged, who does the church look to to do it? Me. It's all right. I'm, well, I was going to say I'm happy to do it, but I'm not. But you know what I mean. No, it falls on then the apostle, now the minister, because we don't have any apostles. Uh, and while the majority secretly agree, what do they generally do? They keep silent and stand back and say, Phil should deal with that guy. Jason should do something about him. Troy, maybe. You know, something like that. And that is initially what happened here with Paul. But Paul is saying that is not how the church works. That's not how it works. We are what? We are the body of Christ. And so when that man sins and refuses to repent, or when a a false teacher comes and tries to lead people away from the truth of God's word, then it's not just the apostle who's hurt. It's not just the minister who's hurt. In fact, generally, I'm the least hurt person. Because frankly, I'm pretty secure in my faith. The people who are really hurt are the people who are wavering on their faith and who are struggling. That's the people who are hurt in the body of Christ. And so he says, it's not just, he didn't hurt me, he hurt you, this man. And the same way, it's not just the apostle's job to respond, not just the minister's job to respond, though he probably should lead the response. It's the whole body's job to deal with these sort of issues. And that was the issue here. Paul needed the Corinthian church to sort of stand up and be counted, to to get serious about it. Not because he was afraid to do it, but because it was their church that this bloke was damaging. And so eventually, after Paul's visit and after his letter, eventually they finally stood up and did it. But then came the question of what next? And this is really, really important. See, sometimes in our zeal to be faithful, we can forget the reason why we are faithful. We must never want to rebuke. If you are a person who wanders around looking for people who are sinning, so that you can rebuke them. You are in a very dangerous situation. In fact, you probably need to be rebuked. You need someone else like you to be looking at you. (laughs) You see, we must never have that attitude, oh, I'm glad we're rid of him. He was a sinner. Be very, very careful when you start talking like that. He was just dragging us down. I'm glad we kicked him out. You see, ultimately, even an action like this must be out of love for the person. That's why we do it. The reason they were to discipline this man by withdrawing fellowship from him was so that he might come to his senses and repent and come back and seek forgiveness. 
That's why they did it. And by God's grace, it seems like that's what happened here. The man had repented and he had come back seeking forgiveness. But you can imagine some of the self-righteous Christians. And there's self-righteous Christians in every church because we're in every church. We've all got some of this self-righteousness. We love to compare ourselves to others. We all like it if we're just not the worst sinner. If there's someone worse than us, it makes us feel better about ourselves. And you can imagine the self-righteous people, you can imagine saying, no, he had his chest. He hurt the church. We shouldn't let him back in, into our holy enclave. I'm not welcoming him, but he dishonoured Jesus. How dare he come back? But Paul says to them, no. That's not what we want. We want him to come back. Look at verse 6. He says, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. In a horrible situation, they're actually beautiful verses, aren't they? If he has repented, he says, then you must forgive him. You must actually go out of your way to go and bring him back and tell him about God's love again. A bit like we welcome any new believer into God's family, into the church. What is the key here? What's the key point? I think it is that ultimately it is grace and forgiveness that are at the heart of the gospel. That's the key thing to take away. We are called to be holy as the church of God. Take sin seriously. There is a place for challenge. There is a place for rebuke. But ultimately the end goal is always grace and forgiveness. Judgment and rebuke should never bring us joy. We do them reluctantly and only ever with the aim of seeing the person repent and come back. That's why we do it. It's forgiveness and restoration that brings us joy. Which brings us to my last point, verse 11, last point for today. Come with me. Verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See, the this he's talking about there is everything. You know, his initial push to get them to challenge and rebuke the man, his, his, his push to discipline the man by removing him from the fellowship, and now his encouragement to welcome him back and show him forgiveness and grace. And he says, I've done all of that so that you won't get tripped up by Satan. See, the devil hates a holy church. The devil hates a godly church. And so the devil works when a church is godly to try and have sin rise up in there. And then when sin does come, he works to encourage that church to see the sin as unimportant. And to say, don't worry about it, just let that guy keep doing whatever he's doing, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he does. But then he also hates a unified church. So he takes that opportunity to create sides in a conflict. So whenever there's sin in a church, sides will form. People who support the man and people who support the, the rest of the family. So he tries to create sides in the conflict. That is the way the devil works. But then he hates a grace-filled church. So even when they did the right thing, the devil was still saying, I've still got a chance here. What I can do now is foster a spirit of self-righteousness and judgmentalness rather than forgiveness and grace. 
That is how Satan works. He takes every advantage of every opportunity to create division in the church of God, to foster sin. So Paul says, that's why I was writing to you. I didn't want to see that happen. Instead, what did he want for that church and what would he want for our church? Instead, he would want us to be a church that takes godliness seriously. Isn't that right? That doesn't tolerate unrepentant sin. Where people do love each other enough to say, what you are doing is wrong and I need to challenge you about it. But then he would also want us to be a church that is full of grace. That doesn't do that out of self-righteousness. That doesn't try and do one-upmanship where I'm better than you and you're a sinner and I'm not. Instead, a church that is quick to forgive, quick to show grace to anyone who turns to Jesus for forgiveness. That is what he wants for our church. That is what God wants for our church. That's what I'm going to pray for our church right now. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of Scripture that many times we would just skip over. We thank you for the way it teaches us and gives us this wonderful model of a grace-filled church and of the way Paul relates to his Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Father, we pray for ourselves that we would not tolerate sin in ourselves especially, but then that we would have the grace and the love to challenge it in others. But help us not to ever do that with a spirit of self-righteousness. Instead, always let us be a grace-filled church where we are quick to forgive and quick to show your love and acceptance to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.